Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. I'm your host, Evan Epstein. In this episode, I talk with Aisha Mastagni, a Portfolio Manager in the Sustainable Investment and Stewardship Strategies Unit at the California State Teachers Retirement System, also known as CalSTRS, the second largest public pension fund in the United States with $285 billion in assets under management. Aisha also serves as a director of Golden One Credit Union, California's leading credit union and one of the largest in the United States with over 1 million members and assets over 16 billion. In this podcast, we discuss her corporate governance career, including her six years at CalPERS, her current focus on ESG and sustainability, and the concept of active stewardship, where we discuss the ExxonMobil case. We also talk about the CalSTRS corporate governance principles, diversity, and corporate purpose. If you like the show, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. You can also find all the show notes on the website boardroom-governance.com, and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com. Aisha, it's so good to see you again. It's been such a long time. Welcome to the Boardroom Governance Podcast, and I'm really excited to hear from you. So uh, how are you doing? I'm good, Evan. Thank you so much for having me. really appreciate you thinking of me and and, um, letting me join you on this podcast today. All right. Well, thank you. uh, I'm I'm really excited. So uh, let's start by the beginning. Let's talk about you and and your background, and and then we'll move into the more meaty governance hot topics. But uh, let's talk about you. Where, Where did you grow up? Um, actually grew up right here in Sacramento, home, um, homegrown here, um, moved around a lot as a kid, um, but always seemed to come back uh, to Sacramento. Um, it's where I went to school. I, I actually graduated from high school very young. I was only 16 when I graduated high school, and I, I wasn't in a hurry to, to go anywhere far. So I went to the University of um, California State University here in Sacramento. Mm-hmm. And and then uh, what did you do after college? Yeah. So my de- my undergrad degree is in economics, and you know I always knew I wanted to be involved in investing somehow. So I started out um, as a retail broker, both working at you know what was formerly Solomon Smith Marty, and then eventually Morgan Stanley. Um, you know I was working there. Let's call it in the height of like the, the dot com you know, sort of era. And I grew up, you know, it was a great education in that I got the foundation of learning how does the stock market work? You know, um, you know, I, I worked, you know, I actually, you know, did trades and, and, you know, worked with clients, but it was kind of a frantic time of, of, uh, in our history, just with everything going on in the markets. And, and eventually it turned into more of a, of a sales job than truly investing. And that's when I started researching and I found obviously that both, you know, CalPERS and CalSTRS um, have big institutional investing arms. And, you know, they were really doing this for the benefit of, you know, whether it be the California state workers or the California teachers. And um, at the time, I knew that there was an opening in what was formerly known as uh, corporate governance. You know, when I went to school, I didn't know what corporate governance was. I didn't know what proxy voting was. I, you know, no one had even, I don't think, come up with the name of of stewardship. But um, a gentleman by the name of Ted White, 
took a chance on me and hired me in the corporate governance unit of CalPERS. Um, I, I owe my career to Ted White, I, and I tell him that all the time uh, because it was the best decision I ever made. And um, it's really, you know, now I've been doing this for, you know, 17, 18 years. And it's this great balance for me between, you know, getting to use my analytical investment skills and also getting to, you know, communicate, you know, CalCiter's mission or at the time CalPERS mission to, you know, other market participants, to our stakeholders. And I get to do fun events like this with you, Evan. <laughs> no, that's uh, that's really interesting. W why don't we talk about CalPERS before we talk about CalSTRS? Sure. So uh, what did you do there and how is CalPERS different in its corporate governance outlook to CalSTRS? Sure. You know, so I started out there, like I said, I, I didn't know what a proxy was when I um, interviewed for the job, but um, I really got my, you know, that's where I really learned the foundational aspects of what governance is in the marketplace. And, you know, I, I always tell even new people that join our team now, you know, you can learn everything about a company in the proxy, you know, down to you know, like, Who's your representatives inside the boardroom? You know, what's their approach to aligning um, incentive compensation with the company strategy? You can learn all about the company strategy inside the proxy. Um, it tells you a lot about the company. So, you know, that's what I did for a long time at CalPERS. Um, at the time, we also had a group of what we called corporate governance managers. You know, so these were concentrated portfolios. I think what everyone would, would call now as activist managers, but they were actively engaging the companies in which they were invested. And so I oversaw that group as well. And I spent about um, six years at CalPERS uh, doing both the proxy voting and overseeing the managers. So I think one common question that people have around institutional investors and maybe the pension funds is, of course you hold so many companies in your portfolio. How is it possible that people like you can review the thousands of equities and maybe you should distill a little bit the process? Because obviously you can't go through every proxy that you own, not only in the US, but all over the world. And, and maybe that could be something interesting for people who don't know how pension funds operate. Sure. Um, you know, and I think this gets a little bit into, you know, me transitioning to to CalSTRS as well, because that's when I really sort of took over the managing of all of the stewardship activities, um, including, you know, the proxy voting efforts. But, you know, both CalPERS and CalSTRS, we have huge portfolios of equities. Um, you know, at, at STRS right now, it's, it's, it's 9,000 plus individual companies. And I don't mean to sound like a defender of the, the proxy advisors out there, but, you know, the proxy advisors, not only do they provide us, you know, really valuable research and insight, you know, when we're evaluating proxies, but I think one of the best things that they do for investors like ourselves is the ability to triage, you know, the 9,000 different proxies we're trying to review. And what I mean by that is that they really help with the operational aspect of voting proxies and the ability to allow investors like STRS to focus on what I call the most 
whether it be the most contentious issues, uh, the most um, complex issues, um, those things in terms of of stewardship or engagement that we want to focus on. So it really allows us to do that in, in a very effective and efficient manner. And some of the more routine votes, you know, those can be aligned with our own uh, principles. And so that's one of the greatest values that the proxy advisors bring to us. And it really allows us to focus on those issues that are most relevant um, to our fund. And how do the pension funds, do they usually use both ISS or Glass-Lewis or pick one? How do, how do they make those decisions? Yeah, you know, well, we're fortunate, um, you know, both when I was at PERS and at STRS in that, you know, we, we have the resources. So um, we use the pro- both ISS and Glass-Lewis. You know, I wish there were more proxy advisors available. I think that it's a, it's, it's a, it's a difficult industry and I wish there was more competition out there. Uh, we also why use, is that? Maybe that's a good. Uh, why would you like to see more? You know, I think even in my years looking at ISS and Glass Lewis, I think that they have very different approaches. And I think as an investor, um, you know, we we manage our proxy voting activities with the same due diligence and care as any other plan asset. We see our right to vote proxies as an asset of the fund. And like any other um, asset that you're managing, you want to take in as much information as possible to make the best decision. And so that's why I always wish that there were more um, proxy advisors out there, just because I think they, they bring different perspectives. Um, that's why we don't, we only, we also use, other um, services such as I'll, I'll take Equilar, for example, you know, to really help us evaluate executive compensation. You know, I want as many inputs as possible. It's just like, you know, the other example I always use is in a, in a proxy contest, for example, you know, I want to hear from the company and I want to hear from um, the dissident because I want to make the most informed decision I can. Mm-hmm. And so, just as a, a idea, how many people work in these different groups in CalPERS and CalSTRS? You know, I would say both organizations have really grown their teams over over the course of the past, you know, as long as I've been doing this. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, right now at CalSTRS, we're at about um, 15 Okay. Individuals. Um, th- that's you know not including you know our support or administrative staff. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Um, but that's divided among a number of activities. And so, you know, at, at Calsters, you know, we call them our beehives. Um, you know, some people might refer th- to them as pillars. We don't like to use pillars because that makes it sound like they're separate from each other. We call it our beehive because. Every activity we do touches another part of, of this, the Sustainable Investment and Stewardship Strategies Group, which is the name of the team at Kelsters. Um, and so, you know, we've talked a lot about stewardship. You know, that's one of the, the main areas of, of the beehive. And within stewardship, you know, that encompasses all of our proxy voting activity. It's all of our engagement with our portfolio companies our engagement with the regulators and policymakers, 
Um, that's, that's all about stewardship. The second piece of part of the beehive is what we call our sustainable investment or basically our portfolio management. At Calster, the Calster's portfolio overall is $285 billion in assets under management. Um, the, the CIS team, we call the Sustainable Investment and Stewardship Strategies Group, CIS for short, because <laughs> mm-hmm. um, it's quite a mouthful. Uh, but the CIS team, uh, we manage about $8 billion of that 285. And um, right now it's a portfolio of public equities, um, um, very shortly later this week, we're actually taking our policy to the board to expand that into private assets. But the portfolio is um, made up of, of three three basic um, strategies right now. The first being a passive strategy um, around a low carbon index. Mm-hmm. Um, the second is a uh, portfolio of activist managers, like I talked about earlier. These are very concentrated portfolios. Um, where the uh, fund managers are actively engaging uh, the portfolio companies to create value. This is in-house, and an active this, investor. In-house. This is active investor. Okay. Yeah. Um, the third is um, what we call our sustainability-focused managers. So unlike the activist managers, um, they're not quite as concentrated but they're, they are more concentrated than, say, a typical active manager that you might find in our global equity unit. And the sustainability-focused managers are really looking for opportunities in the marketplace, you know, those companies that they think will be most sustainable and resilient as we transition to a low-carbon economy. So that's that portfolio. So I talked about stewardship. I talked about our, our investment portfolio. And last but not least, um, we have a team that works on what we call our strategic relations. And, you know, we're a very large fund. Um, We have a lot of stakeholders and interested parties that um, come to CalSTRS and we have to manage all of those relationships. And so that's what the strategic relations team is responsible for. And, you know, all three of those, you know, beehives really work closely together because like I said, they, they overlap, they touch. um, Yeah. That's, that's really interesting. Um, before we go into uh, some of these core questions on governance, uh, I also noticed that in uh, 2012, you joined the board of Golden One Credit Union. How did that happen? Or, or at least what's the, the experience of being a director and not sure. only, you know, of, of evaluating directors? Yeah. So for, for everyone listening that doesn't know the, the Golden One Credit Union, um, you know, it was founded in, in 1933. Um, we have assets of over $16 billion. It's a huge credit union here in California. And, you know, the mission is really just to help. It started out as a as a credit union for California state workers. And now, obviously, we've expanded to, to cover all, all of California. Um, but you're right. It's um, I find it fascinating because, um, you know, I've spent my life engaging public companies. I've spent my life, you know, sitting on one side of the table with mm-hmm. the executives or the, or the directors on the other. And it's, it's such a learning experience for myself to now sit on the other side of the table. Um, you know, I was chair of the CEO compensation committee for a number of years. So it's, it's interesting to be able to have that, that viewpoint from a director trying to manage and oversee 
a strategy of a large financial institution. Um, I'm going to give one other plug for the golden one, just because I find it to be such a progressive and we may get into this later, but, you know, I think that around, especially, well, especially in the United States, but I think, you know, around the, around the globe, you know, diversity inside the boardroom is such a huge issue. And I know many investors um, have really been pushing the portfolio companies to take a broader approach when it comes to um, sourcing new directors and trying to really add that diversity to, to the board. And um, I would say that if you've ever been to a credit union conference, um, you think public companies have an issue with diversity. A lot of credit unions have even more of an issue, but the golden one is um, such a diverse uh, group of board members. We actually have more women on the board than we do um, men. Um, it's We have a variety of backgrounds, skill sets, races, cultures, and it's really embedded in this idea that we want people on the board that are actually using the services of the credit union and actually represent the members and that are using their products. You know, if you're a 70 year old um, male, you know, you're probably not, you probably don't need a house loan. You probably don't need a car loan. You're probably not using our mobile banking services. And so that's just embedded in everything that, that Golden One does. And I'm just, I'm really proud to be part of the organization. Well, that's great. I, I thought that was uh, really interesting. So let's go into some of the corporate governance topics. And before we get into it, maybe we're assuming that everybody knows Calsters, right? Maybe it's because we live in California, but maybe why don't you give a little bit of the history of Calsters and its focus? You you mentioned that you have $285 billion of assets on the management, but maybe some history and what makes it distinctive in, in its category. Sure. So Calsters is over a hundred years old. Um, I think that it was established um, to basically provide a retirement benefit for the teachers of California. Um, right now we're at, we're at $285 billion. Um, we have 975,000 uh, beneficiaries in the state of California. We are the largest educator only uh, pension fund in the United States um, and second largest only behind, you know, CalPERS, obviously because, <laughs> because of our, our size. Um, I think it's there to provide a pension benefit for, you know, kindergarten through uh, community college educators here in California. And I think for a lot of folks, people don't recognize that you know, teachers, they don't pay into Social Security, but they also don't get Social Security. So the the CalSTRS fund or their pension is their only source of retirement income. And so what we're trying to do is really ensure that they have a secure and safe um, retirement um, once they decide to leave their teaching careers. I also think it's really interesting. I, I always give this as a plug because I find it such a fascinating statistic, but um Teachers as a profession live longer than a lot of professions in, in the U.S. And if you're a teacher in California, you live even longer. Really? So, yes. And so right now we actually have over 300 um, pension beneficiaries 
um, that are over a hundred years old living and collecting their pension from CalSTRS. Wow. What do you think that is from? I guess healthy living in California. (laughs) (laughs) Those kids, those kids are not giving them enough problems. Well, you know what it is? I think teachers as a profession too, um, especially if most of them make it past, once you've made it past five years being a teacher, you know, they do it because they love it. And, you know, teachers, they, they, they end up working, you know, long past, you know, necessary to collect that retirement just because they have a passion for teaching and educating youth. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you, you did mention something that I think is very important, which is stewardship and activist priorities. So typically the way I see culsters is, is you have like three layers, right? Like when you do st- uh, stewardship, you have a private contact with a company. That's kind of your first layer. If something's not working, if you see some problems, you may approach companies. Otherwise, you may actually do a shareholder proposal. And if you withdraw it, it means that it's successful because it, you had some level of communication. And finally, you may have an engagement, which is a public or via media, right? Is that your engagement approach and, and stewardship? And how do you view it? No, I, I think you're right, Evan. It's, um, and I've seen the tools that we have available as investors. They've really grown over the last 15 years. And you're right. You know, it starts off, I, I would even go back further. It starts off with our proxy votes. You know, that's one tool that we can use to either support or, um, you know, voice our dissent inside the boardroom or with other shareholder proposals, or with the executive compensation, you know, then you're right. It starts with some of these um, private engagements, whether it be through a, um, you know, off-season engagement or something proactive that CalSTRS is working on. Um, We have shareholder proposals now that um, we can use to, you know, gather the voices of the entire marketplace or other investors. Um, the other thing I would just add is there's a lot more collaborative engagements now. Um, you know, I use Climate Action 100 as, as one, you know, the Human Capital Management Coalition. These are groups that collectively, you know, can put the power of, you know, trillions of assets behind them and really be a force for change um, at companies. So that is really interesting, right? I mean, at least on the big corporate governance landscape, the power or the role of institutional investors over years has grown tremendously, right? Um, you know, 70% plus of the market is owned or managed by institutional investors. So if you add the pension funds, if you add the asset managers, uh, that is a strong voice in the marketplace. And interestingly, Culsters is known to have had these activist engagements and and what's the philosophy behind this activist stewardship model no thank you for that evan it's it's you're right we're calling this new form of stewardship as one more tool in our tool chest and um it's it's really combining our uh, role as a constructive engaged shareholder and combining that with all the tools available to us um, 
that a normal activist manager might use. But we're underpinning all of that is really a deep financial analysis because we do see these activist activist stewardship strategies um, as very resource intensive. But um, we we want there to be, you know, a path to value creation. You know, we're still fiduciaries. You know, we have to be responsible when we use our resources. But we find this, um, we think this activist stewardship strategy would only be used in, in very limited circumstances. And I think ExxonMobil is, is one of the first examples of this. You know, this is a company where all our traditional tools have failed to this point. You know, you know, last year, CalSTRS voted against the entire slate of directors. There's been increased opposition to the board of directors at Exxon. You know, they've, you know, basically ignored shareholder proposals. A couple of years ago, they had a report that re- they had a shareholder proposal um, asking for a report on, you know, climate risks. And it received majority support and they all but ignored it. You know, collaborative engagements like Climate Action 100 have failed to yield any significant results or commitments from the company. And so this was just a a company that you couple all of that, this indifference to shareholders, coupled with, you know, poor financial performance and poor shareholder returns. And it was ripe for change. And so, you know, we're fortunate enough that, um, you know, Engine Number One is in a new um, activist fund that is um, submitting a slate of four alternate candidates. Um, you know, we're not we're not a participant in that solicitation, so I want to be really clear. Mm-hmm. I'm really just talking about how CalSTRS came to this decision to support this slate of candidates and. I think I mentioned that we voted against the entire slate last year. Well, now we have the opportunity to have an alternative to that slate. And, you know, we've we've reviewed the candidates that engine number one has proposed. We think that they have the relevant skills and necessary um, backgrounds that can really help make Exxon a more resilient company and obviously improve the performance I mean, it's been 10 years of underperformance at this company, you know, 10 years of declining returns on capital expenditures. And, you know, it's a board that, while all very um, accomplished, well-respected individuals, um, there's not one person inside the boardroom that has any real experience around energy. And that's what these four candidates bring. So, so one element that I think is interesting in this uh, campaign, out of many interesting things, is the scale at which Engine Number One only holds forty million dollars. Calsters owns three hundred million dollars, which sounds a lot, but ExxonMobil is a hundred ninety-six billion dollar market cap, right? So you you own effectively zero point one percent, and and it's interesting that shareholders can motivate or at least exercise a campaign. And maybe influence, right? Like this, I think this only side of it, I think, is interesting, right? And and you may be successful, right? We we will have to play out. And at least Calsters has a very strong reputation and and a strong voice. 
And it may be, at least from what I'm hearing, something that you'll continue doing if all the other avenues just haven't worked out. Yep. No, I, I, I think you're right. And, and you bring up a really interesting point about you know, the size of your investment. And I, I always say, it's really not the size of your investment, it's the credibility of your argument. You know, have we made, or has Engine One, have, have, have they made a compelling case for change at this company? And like I said, it's you combine this indifference to shareholders, this financial underperformance, and also a path to better value creation. And it's, it's, it's a perfect storm, you know, to make things happen. And, you know, that change has to start at the top. So how many private interactions does Kelsters have per year with companies? Just so we have a park bowl. How many shareholder proposals, just to give us some sense of what goes on behind the scenes, right? Yeah, you know, and I would say the shareholder proposals probably aren't the best proxy that they used to be. Mm-hmm. You know, we used to um, submit and file a lot more proposals than we do today. Um, I think that's partly because, you know, companies are generally just a lot more responsive than they were 15 years ago. So we don't necessarily have to submit the proposals. You know, several years ago, you know, we were submitting anywhere from 25 to 50 proposals a year. Now it's maybe three or four. Okay. Um, and, and and even the 2550 that we submitted in the past, not all of them went to vote. Um, I we all I think you said this earlier. You know, we we take it as a win when we can withdraw the proposal. You know, our our goal isn't to get our name in the proxy. Our goal is really to influence change on a specific issue, and that's what we use the shareholder proposal process for. In terms of the number of companies that we engage, it's everything from, you know, the inbound engagement requests, which goes up exponentially every year. Um, I think now we probably get two or three a week just on the inbound requests from from companies. And so you kind of you add that up. And you're talking at least 100, 200 that are coming in um, from the outside. You know, we have a variety of initiatives going at um, simultaneously, you know, some on our diversity efforts, some focused on climate disclosures, you know, like Climate Action 100 and getting some commitments there. Uh, You know, we have a variety of of initiatives around human capital management and ensure that that there's effective management around a company's most valuable asset, it's human capital. Um, we have a, we have a new initiative that that we started last year um, in response, really, to the pandemic, and we're calling it the Pandemic Resilient Fifty. And these were fifty companies that have been uh, greatly affected by the pandemic whether that be um, their demand for their goods and services has dramatically declined. Um, there's been, you know, maybe some reputational risks associated with a particular company, um, but we're doing a long-term engagement with those companies to ensure, um, you know, 
business continuity of, of, of their firm, you know, employee health and well-being and what we call financial alignment. You know, some of the companies, you know, a few in that pandemic resilient 50 have received, you know, stimulus money. And we want to ensure that that those funds are being used for the long-term viability of the company and not necessarily, you know, going to the pockets of the executives, for example. So, you know, another campaign that Kaltsters had was partnering with Jaina, the uh, activist uh, investor, on Apple. Is that part of the same activist stewardship? Was that a different, a pre-version of what you're doing now? I, you know, I think it was, uh, you're right, it was a precursor to what we were doing with Exxon now. And I think it's it's a perfect example for us where, once again, our role as a constructive, hopefully influential investor partnering with an activist in order to create value at a company. I think Apple was slightly different because you obviously didn't see, it wasn't the under, the, they didn't have the same underperformance issues that Exxon did, but this was a risk around parent parental controls of these devices that also really resonated with, you know, we're a teacher's fund. You know, it resonated with our beneficiaries. And um, that was a very, to me, a very successful campaign that was able to be done. Yes, some of it played out in the media, but at the end, we all reached the same goal, um, which, and, and, and it was able to push sort of Apple to move faster on some of these parental controls, which I think at the end is just going to make them a more valuable, successful company. Yeah, no, that, that that was really interesting at a time. And and it's really interesting to see how you are developing these different uh, campaigns in partnership with different players in the yeah. ecosystem. Another topic that Calsters has been involved for a long time is board diversity. I remember years ago, you developed the 3D database, the diverse director database. So, and that, that was what, 10 years ago, 15 yeah. years ago, uh, something a long time ago. Uh, but obviously, two years ago, there was the SB 826, which is the California law on diversity for public companies uh, based on gender. And just this uh, September, AB 979 on diversity uh, for minorities. You know, how does Calsters uh, think about diversity, one, from its own perspective, and two, on these California laws and have you seen an effect and is that a good thing? And, and, you know, maybe everybody else seems to be also pushing on diversity, including NASDAQ with the SEC and everybody else. So you're right. Um, You know, this is an issue that both, you know, CalPERS and CalSTRS have been focused on for, you know, at least 10, 12 years. And, you know, we've read all the academic research um, I hope that in 2021, the debate around whether diversity adds value, I hope that that's a, that's a it's no longer an argument that it's sort of accepted um, studies because there's been so much work around, around this issue. And, you know, so we knew that having more diverse boards was better for our portfolio companies. And a lot of times, you know, this is 10, 12 years ago, we would talk to companies and they said, okay, well, give us ideas, give us names. You know, we looked at, we don't, we don't have any names to give you. So that's how, that was the um, origins of the diverse director database. And um, 
But we actually eventually transitioned that over to, to Equilar. Equilar has a broad database of a variety of various diverse um, affinity groups that they work with. And they have a huge database now of, of directors um, that come from different backgrounds and, and, and different groups. Um, because, you know, we're not in the business of, of sourcing directors or, or recruiting directors. So we found that that's a better place for that. Um, on to SB um, 826, you know, we were already, you know, talking to companies about diversity at the, at the boardroom level. I think what was helpful with SB 826 is, you know, it really helped accelerate this search and commitments from companies, you know, because, you know, everything about diversity, everyone recognizes the value of diversity, but companies have been somewhat slow to move. And we don't see that, that rapid uptick of, you know, more women inside the boardroom. And so that's what 826 did. It sort of stopped that, you know, we don't want to get into a debate with, with companies about, you know, whether diversity is right for them. But what this legislation did is it just, it really helped accelerate that. Mm -hmm. And um, one of the other big developments, I would say, in the last five years is, and, and we've talked about it, sustainability and ESG, um, and Cultures has been very big on that. Can you talk about the philosophy behind ESG? There are, uh, there's a whole chapter in your uh, corporate governance principles on ESG, and you have, you know, the 21 risk factors, and and, and you align with the uh, United Nations uh, responsible investment focus. Why don't you tell us a little bit more about your ESG focus? Sure, and you're you're right. Thanks for bringing up the 21 um, risk factors, which now has evolved. It's no one because. It was 20, then it was 21. Now we just call it the ESG risk factors. Okay. You know? And that, you know, that was established several years ago because CalSTRS, you know, we're the ultimate long-term shareholder. You know, our liabilities are 30, 40, 50 years out. And so we recognized years ago that things like um, climate change, you know, were going to be acutely affect the companies inside our portfolio. And, you know, the ESG risk factors, you know, they're really meant to be, um, and everyone, you know, that works at CalSTRS or all of our investment managers that we hire, they agree to, um, you know, to consider the ESG risk factors when making decisions around portfolio companies. And it wasn't meant to be an exclusion list or a divestment list. What it is, is that it's recognizing that these, you know, environmental, social, and governance risk factors um, can affect various portfolio companies. And it's wanting to ensure that our external managers, you know, are getting a uh, comparable return for the risks that they're taking. And so that's sort of the origins of the ESG risk factors, you know, now you kind of fast forward to 2020, 2021, and you know we've evolved not only to look at it from a risk side, but also an opportunity. You know, we recognize that you know 
as the world transitions to a low carbon economy, there's going to be winners and there's going to be losers. And, you know, at CalSTRS, we want to ensure that we're positioning our portfolio to be the most resilient um, and one that can take advantage of those opportunities that we see coming. So, you know, stay tuned. There's still going to be more coming from, from CalSTRS as we evolve this program. You know, I think I mentioned that, you know, we're taking the, the sustainable investment policy to the board in just a couple of days to expand that to include private assets, because we think that there's a lot of opportunities um, in that space in terms of, you know, infrastructure, private equity, um, real estate. So one of the elements that I find interesting about Calsters is you have a corporate governance principles that I went on online and, and and checked it out. And the last one is 2018. So I do have a question on how you develop and you come up with those principles. Because for example, one of your principles is that you prefer you want to have independent chairs. You want annual elections. Uh, you want two thirds of the directors to be independent. Uh, you discuss you know time commitments and that you want a CEO only to be on one outside board and uh, outside directors a maximum of four. Others are three, right? Others are five. So, you know, a question is, and, and, and we can go on and on, right? You want board directors to be at least in attendance of 75%. Who, how do you make a decision on what are these principles? Sure. No, I like to think that at CalSTRS, you know, we're... <laughs> We're progressive in terms of our, our our principles, and and you're right. You brought up some. There's some certain things that we sort of hold dear in terms of, um, you know, what we think should be the gold standard of governance practices. You know, you're right. Independence first and foremost, and so we have very high independence standards. You know, even you know we have higher independence standards than let's say. Um, the exchanges, you know, require sometimes our independent standards are higher than what companies would consider. Um, but we've really held steadfast to those to those principles around independence. You know, when it comes to CEO and chairs, you know, I always tell people like, everything everything's fine until it's not fine. And you know, when it comes to CEOs and chairmen or you know chairpersons of the board. You know, we really believe at STIRS that those two roles have very different and often conflicting responsibilities. And you look at certain situations where there's been a need for a change in the CEO. And when that role is combined with the chair, it makes it so much more difficult. And at the end of the day, it's usually the shareholders are the investors that end up paying because you usually have to buy them out of a contract or something um, like that. On to your point about the overboarding. I think that's a really good example for stirs where, you know, we've long held this position that if you are a CEO, you should only be sitting on one outside board. The time commitment of being a CEO I mean, we all know it's way more than a 40-hour week. It's probably way more than an 80-hour week. You know, how can you, you know, 
really responsibly do your duties at, a, at more than one other publicly traded company. And I think that overall, being a public company director, the responsibilities and duties of that role have only gone up in the last, you know, 15, 10, five years. And I don't see it um, receding anytime soon. So that's one where we really held strong. And you, you've seen others, you know, come to our view. We, you know, we've had that same um, sort of line in the sand. And you, you now see the proxy advisors, you know, other big investors that say, yeah, you know, for CEOs, one's really, one other outside board's really enough. And, and I would even argue in, you know, what we've all been through this last um, year with terms of the global pandemic, you know, most CEOs, they need to be focused on their own company and leading their own company. So how can you be providing, you know, strategic guidance and be a sounding board for other CEOs at other companies? I mean, if, if anything, the, the pandemic really, you know, shed a light on, you know, the demands of, of being a director, the demands of being a CEO of these publicly co traded companies. Well, I don't want to be controversial, but what about CEOs that are CEOs in two different companies, like Elon Musk or Jack Dorsey? I mean, not only uh, are, are you a director, but you're CEOs in two different companies. I mean, I think it's interesting to have a policy where there are cases that may not apply. I don't know. I, I think that's an interesting question. And, and how do you set a policy that is rigid, that is flexible, and how do you vote and circumstances when performance maybe is indicative of good performance? Sure. And I think, you know, there are certain things where we at CalSTRS want to be able to evaluate certain situations that are unique to companies. Um, I think that a lot of times executive compensation is a perfect example of that. You know, these are complex issues that require, uh, you know, real life people to review um, the metrics, you know, the, the circumstances, the, the particulars at that company. And going back to what I said at the very beginning, you know, to some extent, that's what the proxy advisors allow us to do is, you know, it gives us time to focus, you know, put the routine issues aside and be able to focus on those unique circumstances. That being said, there are certain things that CalSTRS were unwilling to waver on. The overboarding issue, it's just not one, it's not up for debate for us. You mm -hmm. know, we don't sit inside the boardroom, but we know that there's only so many hours in the day. And I think part of it's too, because we own the whole market. So we recognize that these CEOs, we their primary responsibility has to be running the, the organization where they're an executive. And, and it goes back to also all these, you know, issues are intertwined because we also want you to expand the pool of directors that um, are leading these companies and supposed to be our representatives. If you're always only looking for a CEO, you know, we're never going to get to diversity like we want. <laughs> right, right. And and that goes to 
direct to tenure and, and time limits and things like that. Okay. Last question on, on governance. A big debate lately has been the purpose of the corporation and uh, you know the long-standing view that a, a shareholder-centric or at least shareholder primacy was the core now is being taken or challenged by the more progressive, should I say, view that, hey, it's not only about the shareholders, but about the stakeholders. But even, you know, you as as a as a shareholder, how do you see this? And I should say this maybe was triggered by the best the business roundtable statement in 2019. You know, how does Calsters uh, view that statement in the purpose of the corporation? You know, you're right. This was a hotly debated, um, you know, gosh, time flies. I guess it's been like a year and a half, two years now. Yeah. Um, you know, look, we of all people, especially at Calsters, recognize that we have to operate in a responsible, ethical manner and that we have a variety of stakeholders that, you know, we have to be responsive to. Um, for companies, you know, we are the providers of capital as investors, as shareholders. So their ultimate duty has to be to provide a, you know, risk adjusted return to us as the, as the providers of capital. That being said, they have to operate in a, you know, responsible, ethical manner so that the company can truly be um, sustainable for the long term. Yeah. You, know, you can't you can't pollute our oceans or you know uh, treat your human capital poorly and still expect to be around you know 10, 20 years from now. That's just not going to happen. So you know we recognize those you know long-term issues. And that they have to be incorporated into, you know, a long-term purpose for the company. Yeah, no, that's that's very good, and and I think it it is this ongoing debate that doesn't seem to to end on, on, in governance circles. Okay, so let's switch now to the rapid fire questions. What are the one to three books that have greatly influenced your life? Um, so I'm a huge fan of Freakonomics. You know, Stephen Levitt and and Stephen Dubner. I, I just love their books. I now listen to their podcasts all the time. I think that the other book um, that I read a few years ago, this is more sort of on the fun side. And also because I um, I was a dancer. I was a ballet dancer all my life. I, I took dance. I took ballet three nights a week till I was like six months pregnant. Um, was Misty Copeland's Life in Motion. I just thought that was a really, um, it, it just an, fascinating story about, you know, how she became, you know, a world-class, you know, ballet dancer and, you know, what she overcome came to get there. So that's great. I, I love those, uh, different, uh, outlooks beyond governance, right? Yes, beyond yes, economics. Yes. <laughs> um, and so who were your mentors and what did you learn from them? Oh gosh. So, you know, I'd start with my father. Um, he just had an amazing, work ethic and, um, an amazing, you know, he loved, he always worked in, in, um, human resources, you know, de department of personnel. And, um, 
he loved what he did. And so, you know, it's like, if you're going to spend, you know, eight, nine hours, you know, make sure it's something that you love doing. And so he's definitely a mentor for me. I, you know, I say the other one is I, I, I talked about him at the beginning, you know, I owe, I owe Ted White my career. You know, if it wasn't for him, um, I wouldn't be get to do everything that I, that I love doing right now. And I think, you know, the last person would just have to be, you know, Ann Sheehan, Mm -hmm. you know, she hired me at CalSTRS and, you know, I really felt like I learned so much from her in the 10 years, you know, working with her. And, you know, she taught me so much about, you know, not just the world of governance, but, you know, navigating the, the political landscape, um, you know, learning how to communicate to a wide variety of audiences. And so I just always value her, her insight on, on all of that. That's great. Um, yeah. And I, I love, and I should, I should get her on the podcast. Yes, too. You should. <laughs> um, so are there any quotes that you think of often or you live your life by? Um, I do love Albert Einstein's quote, you know, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't really understand it yourself. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, in what I do now for Cal Sturz, you know, I love this idea of taking, you know, really complex issues and distilling them and being able to explain them to a wide variety of audiences, whether that be, you know, the Cal Sturz teachers whether that be the media, whether that be communicating with other investors. So I think that's probably a quote I live by. <laughs> I like it. And, and very appropriate for a culture's governance. Exactly. Uh, um, and, and what is an unusual habit or an absurd thing that you love? Well, I don't, I'd have to say anything to do with dance. I watch I watch shows about dance, even if they're not, you know, critically acclaimed. <laughs> um, so I do love that. Um, you know, I, I am a creature of habit. So, you know, I, I eat the same things, you know, I work out pretty regularly. Um, it's, I just, I, I like routine. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Any parting thoughts uh, for directors? I would just say for directors, you know, remember who you're representing when you're sitting inside that boardroom. You know, you're there to represent the interests of a broad shareholder group and your responsibility to them to ensure a, you know, risk adjusted return. Um, And when I mean risk adjusted return, that means you know, considering all of those long-term ESG risks that we talked about, Mm -hmm. but also doing it in a responsible ethical manner so that, you know, we can provide a safe and secure retirement for the teachers of California. Yeah. Well, Aisha, it's been great to uh, talk to you and discuss governance and more and and reconnect after all these years. So thank you very much for taking the time and hopefully we'll uh, catch up again soon in the city or some other place in California. Sounds good. Thank you so much for having me. Gosh, the hour went by so fast. (laughs) (laughs) All right, Aisha. See you soon. Thank you. Thank you so much. Bye. Bye. 
Thank you for tuning in to the Boardroom Governance Podcast. If you like what you heard, please consider subscribing, leaving a review, or sharing this podcast on social media. If you'd like to reach out to me, you can just find me on LinkedIn or Twitter at Evan Epstein. You can also check out all the details related to this podcast on the website boardroom-governance.com and please feel free to subscribe to the Boardroom Governance newsletter at evanepstein.substack.com.